Would you all pray with me? Lord, we're grateful that you draw us together. You give us your word, that you promise, promise to grow us into your likeness, and that you give us the hope of the gospel. We ask that you would give us ears to hear even today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Like uh, some of y'all, I have started a, a garden in my backyard, and I am not much of a gardener, to be honest. It's, it's my first real concerted effort at a garden, and I was inspired to do this by my neighbor who lives across the street. He is a very accomplished gardener, and if you walk into his backyard, it's really less like a garden and more like a farm. I mean, there is just an ocean of tomatoes and berries, and it's, it's incredible and it's impressive. And I was over at his house in his backyard last week um, asking to borrow something. He was showing me all that he's growing, and I'm just looking with jealousy. And, and uh, he helps to carry over, it was some of those cages that hold tomatoes. And we walk over to my garden, which is probably a hundredth of the size of his. And he looks at it and he says, um, you know, you, there's stuff growing there. Have you, have you gotten anything from it? And I said, well, I got a couple of radishes and a zucchini a few weeks ago. And... He said, oh, interesting. And uh, the troubling fact of my garden is it, it, there's a lot of growth, but it hadn't done anything. I mean, it hasn't, we've got maybe a, a, a cucumber about the size of a quarter, and uh, that's about all that's there. And I don't know what that says about me as a person, um, but I know what it says about that garden, and it's this. A garden that doesn't produce anything is almost pointless. I'm not even sure if it's worth the effort, frankly. Uh, the Lord will redeem it in some way, I'm sure of it, but how he will do that, I don't know. And if you were to read the Bible all in a night, if you just drank a boatload of coffee and, and ventured to read the whole of the scriptures in one night, you would see that one of the primary ways the Bible describes the people of God is like a garden or a vineyard, or sometimes a vine. And it's all in Isaiah, it's all in the Psalms, it's in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it's in Amos. And then you get into the New Testament, and you'd see that Jesus also talks about the people of God as a garden, but he is the true vine, he declares. And he uses all of this language about growth and vine dressing and, and farming. And in a way, this all makes a lot of sense when we think of the life of the church, doesn't it? We think of the church springing up technically in Asia and then it goes over in Europe and it goes into North Africa and it goes up into Central Asia and then it eventually jumps over an ocean and it goes to the Americas and then even at present, it's still growing perhaps faster than it has ever grown in parts of Southeast Asia and other uh, majority world countries. And so when Jesus declares in Matthew 13 that the kingdom of God is like a seed planted, this should all be familiar. And the whole point, of course, is that the seed, the kingdom of God, would grow into something that produces fruit, that produces fruit, that blesses the world. And the, the parable is, in fact, kind of straightforward on this point. The kingdom of God, it isn't exclusively about grace. It isn't exclusively about how the gospel helps us cope with suffering. 
It isn't even just about the hope of the life to come. It is all of those things. Be sure, it is all of those things. But the kingdom of God and the proclamation of the gospel, make no mistake, is about the production of good fruit, of works, about how God's people could redeem and bless the world. The kingdom of God is about enduring to the end that something in our lives might prove fruitful and of service to the one who's made us and called us his own. And so the question that the parable asks of us is do you see fruit in the life of the church? And do you see fruit in your own life? Do you see love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Do you see righteousness? Do you see self-sacrifice? Do you see anything that looks a little bit like what Christ has done for us on the cross? And if you're like me, uh, you probably see a mix of a lot of things. You probably see seasons where you felt quite mature and fruitful, and then seasons where you felt you weren't growing. And the parable actually gives us some remarkable good news at the very beginning in this regard. Because unlike common self-help wisdom, which gives you a model and it gives you a series of steps and it gives you a time frame, Jesus says this, any fruit that you see in your life or in the church will probably come about just like it does in a vineyard, slowly, with great care and attention and cultivation, periods of great growth and harvest, but also periods of pruning and periods where our hope is in the Lord to tend to us. And that should be encouraging because where everything in our hearts, especially in my heart, I must admit, says tomorrow I will wake up and I will be different. Jesus says, abide in me and I will grow you and I will make you different. In other words, the parable says at the very beginning, fruitfulness doesn't come about primarily from our own efforts, but occurs by the work of, the God, of, of our God and it occurs under specific conditions. And these conditions are important. And Jesus goes in to describe just these conditions in the parable. He says, a sower goes out casting seed. Some of the seed is eaten by birds. Some of it sets down roots, but then is scorched by the sun as soon as it grows up. Some of it grows, but then thorns grow along beside it and they choke it out. And then finally, finally, some of the seed settles into fertile soil. It grows and it produces 160, 30 times the fruit. And then Jesus gives us the key to the parable. He brings his disciples to the side and he tells them, he says, the bird that eats the seed is the work of the devil. The seed scorched by the sun is the one who fails to endure under hardship and suffering. And the one who's overwhelmed by thorns is the one who ultimately pursues wealth and things of this world. And finally, the seed that lands in the good soil, that is the one who hears, who understands, produces good fruit, blesses God and the world. And I think honestly, we could do a whole series on each of these points. You could do a, a sermon on each one of these. Of course, we don't have the time, but it is worth attending to the way that these point to our own conditions. They ask us a simple set of questions. What conditions are you living in? What conditions are you living under? Are you plagued by the work of the devil? 
That's a condition worth not overlooking. Moderns like to, to resist any notion of the devil, but be sure it is all throughout scripture. The work of the devil is present and the work of the devil is very real. It's deeply biblical. Second, are you overwhelmed or incapacitated by suffering or anxiety? Is endurance a struggle for you in other words? And then finally, three, are you infatuated with or distracted by material things, by wealth or power or success, social status? And notice these questions, these are not, the issue is not whether there'll be temptations or whether they'll be present in your life. It is, do these things prevent you from hearing God? That's the crux of the parable. And another way we might ask this to reveal the heart here is when you have times where you are alone or you have times that you devote to listening to God or, or if you have times that just by happenstance or times where you can hear his voice, maybe on a walk or, or quiet times where you read scripture or cooking, whatever it is, whatever those times are where you might hear God, what is it that your mind fixates on? Is it on prayer? If it's on prayer, you might have fallen into some of the good soil. If it's on your bank account, or if it's on some item that you desperately want, or is it some condition of hardship, maybe something you feel deeply anxious about? If it's one of those things, then you might need to cry out to God and ask him to replant you in the fertile soil where he can speak to you and you can hear. Maybe one of the more visceral times I've had this experience was when uh, my wife Caroline and I moved from Toronto to upstate New York. Uh, we were living in Toronto. We had a bunch of great friends and we really enjoyed living there. And then we moved to upstate New York and didn't know anyone. We didn't know a soul there. And um, I was anxious about this. So I was, we were building up to, to move and I was praying to the Lord, please, Lord, bring us, bring us friendships, bring us some friends. So we move and a week goes in and we, we set up a, a, a dinner with a, a friend of a friend. We invite him over. And right before he and his wife come over, I start to experience this chest pain. I, I don't have any pre-existing health conditions. I, I had no idea what was going on, but I started describing them to Caroline. Caroline practices medicine. She knows about this stuff. Finally, she says, David, you have to call the doctor. So we actually, we go to an urgent care and urgent care says, hey, you, you need to go to the hospital. So then I take the most expensive cab ride I've ever taken, which was in an ambulance. And we get to the hospital and uh, I meet with the doctor and they, they figure out what this condition is. It's fine, I'm, don't worry about me, I'm good. Uh, but the thing that I was so frustrated about is I had, we had missed having dinner with this potential friend. We'd missed the opportunity to make a friend. I'd been praying for a friend. Fast forward two months, sitting around a campfire on a camping trip in Vermont. And I'm telling this story to a guy who's on the other side of the campfire. All of a sudden it dawns on him as I'm describing this. He said, David, you'll never believe it, but I was your ER doctor. I've been praying for a friend I was frustrated that it wasn't happening. And all along, God had a plan. Eric went on to be one of my close friends in Rochester. I still keep up with him to this day. And it's, to me, this amazing story of how I had been so absorbed in a particular condition that I didn't like that I was totally unable to hear God or to see what he was doing. 
I've been so taken by my own poverty and, and worry that I couldn't hear what he was telling me. And in, in some ways, I had to be kind of smacked upside the head and replanted in the good soil of, of God's work. So what does that good soil look like for you? I think that's the key question. What is the good soil? Jesus is surprisingly vague about it. If you notice how in all of the, the negative circumstances, Jesus draws out a correlate, the devil, a lack of endurance, the, the allure of wealth, but he doesn't do that with the fertile soil. Why is that? I think it's because the fertile soil was standing right in front of the disciples. He was and is the fertile soil and his living spirit is still today for us, this fertile soil. And in this regard, our Romans eight reading speaks specifically to just this issue. Hear what Romans eight says, but you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit. Since the spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. You see, life in the spirit is the true soil where you can grow. That's where growth will occur. That's where you will see dividends. That's where you will see life and have it abundantly. And if you read through this, I don't have the time to preach all on this. I'd love to do a whole sermon on Romans 8, but we don't have the time now. You would be tempted to think of this as a dualism, but it's not. It's not dualism. It isn't anti-materialism. It isn't a kind of Gnosticism where you flit away from the very earthy realities of our present world. That's not what life in the spirit looks like because life in the spirit doesn't look like the progression of this world. In this world, everything about self-improvement or self-help says measure yourself by your own standards. But life in the spirit says give yourself over to God. In this world, self-improvement says you are a failure when you don't live into your own vision of progress. But life in the spirit says there is an enemy and you must resist him. In this world, self-improvement says take control of your own circumstances. But life in the spirit says see the way your circumstances reveal the work of God. In this world, self-improvement says there is no one else in control of your progress but you. But life in the spirit says, look how I raise those who are dead. Look, life in the spirit is the fertile soil. And if you want to grow, you must release yourself to life in the spirit of the risen Christ. You will not grow under the rubrics of self-help. You will not see progress under your own efforts or steam. If you want to grow, if you want to wake up and be different, you have to give yourself up and over to God. Life in the spirit is this keen awareness of the deeper realities of your life, how God is on the move in the details of your present world. Life in the spirit is actually abandoning those things that hold you back from intimacy with God. And it is that awareness that God holds all of your life in his hands he gives you all things and in all of the circumstances that you live in, he's working for the good 
because you have been called according to his purpose. Life in the spirit looks maybe a little bit like this. I love mountaineering history. It's worthless knowledge except for uh, sermon illustrations, I guess. But in 1953, some of y'all know uh, Mount Everest was climbed for the first time. Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, and they, they, they climbed Everest. And that was really the kind of, the last great, big, huge, enormous peak that never been climbed. There are some others in the Himalayas too. But after that, people began to focus on really technical objectives, mountains that might not have been as high as Everest, but were just really hard, you know, technically challenging. Everest is kind of a long slog up glaciers, but they started to focus on mountains that took a lot of skill and finesse. And so in the 1950s, the real in the 60s, the real crown jewel of, of this was Cerro Torre, which is in Patagonia, it's in South America. And it looks like uh, um, those mountains, you know, when you're a kid and you grab a purple crayon and you just go, it looks like those. It's just these ferocious teeth protruding from the earth, look impossible to get to the top. And so in 1953, this brash and bold Italian climber, Cesar Maestri, he goes with a team one of his partners dies in the effort, but they, they, they try to, to climb Cerro Torre, and Maestri comes home declaring that he's climbed it. His partner has died in the attempt, but he has made it to the top. But then another team goes and tries to climb, and they realize that his account actually, it's almost as if he's described a different mountain. He's clearly not climbed it. Maybe he's lied, or, or maybe he, who knows? He's, the man is still alive today. Who knows what, whether he lied or not? But in order to prove it, Maestri was so troubled by the fact that no one believed him, so he, he went back in the 70s. He comes back, but this time he, he brings a, a larger team and he brings a generator, a compressor, one of those diesel-driven compressors, and he bolts his way all the way up. And it takes him weeks, all, almost two months but at the very top, it doesn't work. So the weather window breaks, there's too much ice and he doesn't make it. And so he goes home. And then three years later, really seven years later, actually, 1977, look at my notes right. Three climbers from the United States come and what they realize is this, they're younger and they realize that there's no way to sort of manhandle your way to the top of this mountain because it requires small window. There are only small windows of, of clear weather in that part of that country. And so you, you have to move fast. You've got to go quick. You can't bring compressors and all this equipment and all this stuff. And you have to go uh, uh, with just the minimal amount. You've got to go in one push. And so they realize this and they do it all within six days. Maestri was up there two months. This team was up there six days. This is a little bit like life in the spirit, is it not? Giving up what holds you back so that you can move fast and light. Trusting in the conditions that are given and moving into them regardless, even when they feel risky. You see, Maestri, he thought that sheer power and will would ultimately work. But the new, cl new climbers knew that the risks of moving with less equipment would actually be more effective in the long run. And life in the spirit, again, is so much like that. It might feel riskier. It might feel like abandoned. It might feel like giving up the idols or the things that clutch you and give you comfort. 
but it also looks like keeping in step with promises of God that will not break. So I would challenge all of you today, if you are not in the fertile soil of the Lord, abide in the Holy Spirit. Trust in that life and give up all else that hinders you. Move fast and light under the guidance of the spirit of the resurrected Christ who bled and died for you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.